Welcome to Alive. I'm Christina Redko. Today, we have the honor to talk with Tyson Yankaporta. He belongs to the Appalachian clan from Western Cape York in Australia. So your book, Sand Talk, is about examining global systems from the indigenous knowledge perspective. Can you explore that, Tyson? Yeah, it was kind of uh, an act of almost reverse anthropology. It was sort of turning the gaze around, often studied, but then also in our own, the books that we write are seeking to explain, even in our own voices, we're always seeking to explain to the world our cultures and tell the world our stories. But I wasn't doing that. I was standing within my culture and stories and then looking out at the world. It wasn't even really reverse anthropology because I wasn't looking at the people of the world and basically telling everybody how inferior their culture is compared to my incredibly wise tradition or anything like that. I was more looking at the systems, the global systems of civilizations over the last 10,000 years or so, that, that brief blip in time and looking at the systems that have arisen from that and how we might begin to look at those things to turn that Titanic around before it hits the iceberg. And this podcast focuses on living systems. What could you say about that? Systems are living. Even economies could be said to be living entities in as much as they are dynamic and self-organizing systems. Every complex system, when it reaches a certain stage of complexity, it becomes self-organizing and minds and people are no longer able to really tinker them that much or intervene in them that much. They kind of just do their own thing. Um, every living system, the global political and economic system that arose primarily from the Anglosphere and has come to dominate the planet, it is a sort of a sentient, almost uh, self-organizing entity because it's a very complex system and it kind of just does its own thing now. <laughs> yeah, it's like an enormous artificial general intelligence almost so living systems they all do that but most living systems will exist within a network of other systems and they will exchange entropy and one system's entropy is another system's lunch and it's in these closed loops recycling around now uh, that's usually what happens when systems are emergent but when systems are tinkered by one mind or one culture or one set of minds you find that they're not like that they tend to be open loops and so with a mouth at one end and an ass at the other and they just kind of suck things in and then poop out entropy into static heaps that aren't exchanged and it doesn't recycle very well so be, you get these entropic systems as well um, which are a very recent phenomenon but they're also living systems they just they're parasitic systems that have not yet become symbiotic Yeah, and something that you like to say, I think it's related to that, is the fact that nothing is created or destroyed, but recycled. Yeah, well, that understanding of reality changes everything. That changes your notions of time, even. Mm -hmm. Because the idea of the arrow of time is formed from this idea of enclosures, where you enclose complexity in a vacuum in a space with mm -hmm. borders and it's not very permeable the membrane around that so inevitably that system breaks down over time 
And that's what gives rise to nonlinear time. The teacup doesn't uh, put itself back together after it's smashed on the floor, you know. Um, <laughs> but I guess our reality is more about vast, complex, interconnected systems that recycle energy and matter and resources amongst and between. They have allowances for each other. And like I said, you have those closed loops in between. So everything's recycled in reality. That's how the universe works. And so time changes a little bit when you view it from that point of view. It wasn't me that invented that idea, though. I, I came up with it in my mind, but then I found out later that actually Charles Darwin had, had proposed that different view of physics and time uh, long before I did. People were more attracted to those yeah. twisted ideas of the fittest survive and all that kind of thing. I also appreciate when you explain that indigenous knowledge is not just about information. Often people only think about the content of indigenous knowledge, but it's also about the method and the process. Very few people pay attention to the epistemology of how indigenous knowledge works. Pretty much. It's like in medicine, you often see emerging people using acupuncture as a treatment protocol when it just involves placing the needle in at certain pressure points to produce a desired effect, because those effects are measurable and you can measure that. But in Western medicine, if that is used, it eliminates the, the notion of chi and that understanding of the energetics that makes all that work. It's sort of empty practice. So they've taken the content of sticking needles in at these pressure points, but they've sanitized it away from that to the energy and the spirit and the understanding of how energy flows and how to live within that. Most things do that. Mindfulness, mindfulness techniques are lifted out of a, not just a spiritual tradition, but a tradition of activism and of right living and of structuring your society in the right ways. Another message that you have that's beautiful, beautiful, is that humans are the custodians of Earth. Mm. And as you say, I think we have to relearn how to do that in some mm. ways, right? But not as some magical being. I'm careful to say that we're the custodial species. That's what our species does. We're patterned in that way. And that's our particular ecological niche. It's very complex. Anywhere you have wilderness, so the idea of land without people, then that's sick land. There's all land, natural system, most of them anyway. Um, there's some that don't need us. But most, most land-based systems and even ocean systems, they need us in there as part, part of the ecology. We, we have a niche and we're supposed to be there caring for those places. And yeah, we're a custodial species um, and we're quite unique in that way. And it's bad for us if we're not doing that. That's what we're, our bodies biologically are patterned to do. So we experience frustration if we're not doing it, if we're out of our habitat and out of our niche. And, but also the land experiences distress as well. And we're all um, experiencing those distress signals now. We have been for quite a long time, about a hundred years at least, starting to notice, even as disconnected as we are and domesticated as we are, we're starting to notice the distress signals from the landscape. And we're all starting to hear that call now for some kind of return 
into our relation with that sentient landscape in the bioregions where we live. And something beautiful that you also say that I imagine is related to that is move with the land or the land will move you. Right? Yeah. Well, these landscapes we inhabit, they're not static. A couple of hundred meters every year, things change over time. They always have. And you can expect quite cataclysmic and apocalyptic events to occur at least every 10,000 years or so. 10 to 12,000 years, you, you expect those big cycles of change. Sea levels rise, sea levels fall, uh, rainfall patterns shift. You need to move with the land or the land will move you. There isn't this kind of world of all these enclosures where zebras belong there and ibex belong there and kangaroos belong here and brown people belong there and all these kinds of things. <laughs> Migration is a part of how the... The, the world works and it's part of like I said before all those different systems those sort of semi-permeable membranes there's movement across them entropy does build up but it's exchanged and that's another system's lunch and things do move across and mingle and, and there's hybridizations and different patternings that occur as the land shifts and as it, every entity in that landscape shifts as well you also talk about the process of working indigenous knowledge in four items. What can we know? What do we know? How do we know it? And how do we work with? Yeah, and you can look at those four questions and you can see them in any way according to your culture and knowledge. You could see that as axiology, ontology, epistemology, methodology. You could see it like that. I personally see that as spirit, heart, head, hands. You know, not as separate things, but as a process of how you come into a place or into a relationship. It's that spirit first and taking care of those things of spirit and then heart being your relation. You're establishing that relation, that connection in that way. Head, then you're doing the thinking and the knowledge work and then hands, that's your that's you applying that practically within the world the desire to to increase relatedness and connectedness and, and creation in that way yeah but that's also another way of saying that from Doris Shillingsworth the elder here in Australia from Murawari people she calls it to respect connect reflect direct and her observation has been that non-aboriginal people tend to do it the other way around the direct first they come in with an intervention direct and then they then they reflect on that and measure their outcomes and find they've missed them then they, they realize out of that uh, investigation that they should have connected with people and place and made relationships so they belatedly start to do that and then and just as they're leaving and flying out again that's when they learn when it's too late they learn to respect they find respect for the place and the people they got all the right steps they're just doing it the wrong way around globally Let's end by having you recite one of your poems. It's called Ark. Brief, brief time ago, the world was drowned to make room for that land long laden with fathomless ice. Virginal soil and rock awakened naked calling, and so they came for her, all the rogues and greed-glitched species uncooperative outcasts and invasive weeds, 
dissatisfied with biological niches and symbioses. They piped in, screaming, mine, mine. Self-devoted, unilateral roots penetrating. Singular hooves smashing and the fittest of claws ripping. Mutable spirits shaping new monsters. Habits patterned on snarling and snapping. Every kind an apex kind in an ecological pissing contest. Exceptionalism howled to the heavens, then sung. Fires and stones and clumsy spears, trailing herds of behemoths, then husbanding a dominion of seeds and eggs and placental brethren yoked and retarded into service, weakened and fattened sedentary, slaughtering ancient entities of soil and loam, chipped away by slaves, raising grains empty of substance, skins lightening to leach some substance from the weak sun, forced marches in search of new plunders, apex warlords vanquishing competitors banged and hooved, clearing that least diverse of infant ecologies until at last man standing alone. Then, somebody remembered how to make a boat. So that's like my potted prehistory of Europe. Thank you for listening. Please share, subscribe, support, and rate this show and all those amazing things you do with podcasts. Just go to alivepodcast.net. Engage with Alive by recording your questions into pod inbox forward slash alive. This show celebrates the wonders of being alive.